Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Squawker Talker podcast. And the focus today is all on the Champions League. Europe's biggest, brightest and shiniest competition dropped its group stage draw overnight. And here on the Squawker Talker, we will be previewing all eight groups as Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea look to defend their title in 2022. And with most of us finally taking that chance to catch up with some old friends in the last few weeks, our own pals over at UEFA have kindly followed suit as the theme or the apparent theme of the group stages is old friends and enemies. Group A, that spots Manchester City up against PSG on the back of their semi-final showdown last season. Liverpool, they're paired with old foes Atletico Madrid and Manchester United are up against Europa League conquerors Real. All three Premier League groups, that's where we get ourselves started, alongside Chelsea, who are in Group H with Serie A Giants Juventus. And then in part two, we'll be scanning across the rest of the draw. Barcelona, they find themselves paired up with Bayern Munich as they look to exercise their 8-2 ghosts. And Real Madrid take on Inter Milan. Right then, plenty, plenty to get through on the show. My name's Fergal Brennan, and as ever, the man for the big occasion, we have Squawker's very own Mohamed Butt. Mo, how's things? Yeah, pretty excited, mate. The draw was very spicy and the transfer news since the draw happened has been even spicier. So, you know, it's just a big old bowl of cumin right in front of my face. You know, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and if you like spicy and you like hot takes, make sure you keep listening because Mo is bound to have an absolute stack of them. Uh, and it seems fitting that we've got ourselves a glamorous signing for the start of the Champions League. With Jake already off on international duty, we have Bundesliga expert and writer for the independent, Stefan Biankowski. Stefan, how's things? I'm doing very well, guys. Thanks for introducing me to the podcast. And I couldn't agree more. I think the Champions League draw just really makes it feel like we're in the thick of it now. Um and I can't wait for it. Yeah, I am um, Group A. We're going to get ourselves started on, and this is Mo. In terms of Hollywood setups, uh, PSG up against Manchester City, it doesn't get much better than this. Your way for draws can be a bit dry sometimes in terms of having to wait three or four hours till a team actually gets pulled out. This is what you're looking for: two massive heavyweights that we don't have to wait until the knockout stages that have to test each test against each other in the group stages and. There's a very recent bit of history, obviously, with City and PSG, going back to last year's semi-final, City winning, going on to lose against Chelsea in the final. But I want to look at PSG for a second because their entire model, including bringing Lionel Messi in this summer, is built around winning the Champions League. But when you look at their record in the last decade or so, it's not great. Four last 16 exits, three quarterfinals, and then the last two years they've stepped it up lost against Bayern in the final in 2020, and then obviously in the semis against City. Given the fact that they have brought in Messi, they've brought in Donnarumma, Ramos, etc., they are now building a team rather than this just very expensively assembled array of trinkets that try and play incredible football and score lots of goals. They now look to have a real structure and a spine right the way through the team. Is this the season where perceptions of PSG in the Champions League do start to change? Yes. I guess like it, it's the thing. It, we, we, the proof is in the pudding, right? And as they as they've assembled the most fearsome collection of people known to man via free transfers that apparently have no impact on their wage budget, whatever. Financial fair play is great, guys. Um, it's a fantastic side. Donnarumma is an upgrade on Kilo Navas, right? Fantastic, a massive goalkeeper player of the tournament, the Euros. I'm pretty sure. 
dominate the final man of the match, the final. Amazing, amazing goalkeeper, right? Hakimi is outrageous. Is is a supernova of a fullback as we've seen at, in, at Dortmund and Inter now. Uh, you know, Genie Van Alden. <laughs> I always feel sorry for him in a way because I'm, I'm sure when he first went there, he was thinking, I'm going to be able to play like Netherlands genie, get forwards for goals, that sort of thing. And then, so then, they, bring in, then they bring in Messi. He's like, oh no, I'm just defending again. And so he, but, but he's great at defending. We saw for Liverpool for years, the big complaint about him was, oh, all he does is he tackles, wins the ball back and keeps, keeps the ball moving, right? But that's what PSG need in midfield. They need someone that's going to be fit all the time, which he is, that's going to keep running after the ball, win it back, and then recycle it intelligently. He does that perfectly. And then Messi is Messi's the greatest player in the world. I mean, what what more do you want? He's a one-man attack. He'll he'll he immediately makes up for the fact that PSG didn't have any attacking midfielders. He starts attacks from attacking midfield. The fact that they've got Neymar as well means that Messi starts attacks and Messi starts attacks in midfield, as he always does. And Neymar is in the final third to make things happen. We've seen these, this combination before with MSN. It was devastating. Of course, what made that work was the selfless and, and hard work of Luis Suarez, right? And what they have now, well, what they have right now is Kylian Mbappe, who's a very different kind of forward altogether. And it almost tips it over into imbalance, where they become too top-heavy because Mbappe doesn't really defend much. Neymar doesn't defend much, if at all. And, ne- and Messi doesn't defend at all because he's 34 years old. You don't run around, want him running around pressing. And what's interesting with this whole rumour that Mbappe might be leaving is for their Champions League hopes, I think that actually helps them. It will make league winning, winning league go harder, right? Because Mbappe is just a goal machine and you want goal machines to plough through league go, right? Especially because Neymar's only ever fit half the time. Um, so winning Liga will become trickier, but winning the Champions League, I think, becomes easier because before you had three three whole players who don't do any pressing. That's very hard to carry in in the knockout stages of the Champions League, right? Like we saw Barca struggle with two players who couldn't press, right? Messi and Suarez, right? And it led it led to them getting absolutely slapped by everybody away from home. PSG ran three of them, but. If they lose Mbappe and they replace him with someone that does a lot of work, a lot of pressing, I don't know. There was, I saw a rumor about Richarlison, someone like that, someone that does loads of energetic running and loads of pressing, that might really help them in the in the in the latter stages. Honestly, as absurd as it sounds, because suddenly they'll have more of a defensive framework to just let Messi and, and Neymar do their thing. And as we've seen with Messi repeatedly, if you ha- if he has a partner running on his level, it's basically impossible to stop him. Because you can cover him, but then he'll find his partner. The problem with Barcelona last year is, is he was finding who? Washed up Suarez, can't score away from him in the Champions League. Jordi Alba. Like, there's not, you know, he's not passing. It's a, been a one-man band. You put him with Neymar, that's, that's, that's completely different. Neymar's got the most obscene numbers in the Champions League since he went to PSG. Messi also right up there. These two chances created, goals scored, chances uh, assists, big chances created. You know, they're phenomenal. And it's going to be, I mean, yeah, basically, I think almost, I almost think if Mbappe leaves, it'll be hit to their reputation, but it'll make make it a lot easier for them to do, as you say, and change their whole image in the Champions League. Looking across to the rest of Group A, um, obviously City and PSG, Stefan, are the two big standout names. They're the two sides we are expecting to go through as the top two in Group A. But RB Leipzig, it's an interesting proposition with Leipzig in terms of how they're expected to do. New man in the hot seat, Jesse March has come in at the start of the campaign. Two big, obviously, departures, Canate to Liverpool and and Pamacano to Bayern Munich. A little bit of a step up in terms of finish last season, back-to-back third places and then grabbing second place in behind Bayern at the just kind of in the final few weeks of, of last season. 
given the fact that Jesse March has come in, a little bit of a change in mentality, change in structure and, and two big exits. Yes, there has been incomings. Silva and um, Angelino have made their loan moves permanent, but they, they don't look as strong. Last season was very, very good. If Bayern slipped, they looked the best place to maybe kind of leapfrog them. But as it stands, they definitely don't look as strong as uh, as last season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably up for contention, to be honest with you. I think in terms of the actual squad, um, I think they're okay. Um, as you said, obviously, they lost Kanate and Upamecano, but um, in kind of typical Leipzig fashion, they've managed to bring in two really exciting young defenders in Guardiola and Samakin, who came from Croatia and France. Uh, respectively, they've gone straight into the team um, and they look okay, to be honest with you. Andre Silva is undoubtedly kind of the real kind of uh, the big signing. Um, that's the kind of player who maybe three or four years ago would have probably left the Bundesliga entirely, um, unless maybe Dortmund could have done some sort of deal or indeed if he went straight to Bayern Munich. So, you know, you talk about a player there who scored more goals than Haaland last year. Um, so, you know, I think the I think the players are there to really properly challenge in the Bundesliga, and I think they're probably there to maybe, you know, they could give Man City and PSG a bloody nose. I think this probably kind of suits March to be honest. This group because if they were maybe put in a group like Dortmund, where perhaps where they're expected to really qualify, I think that would have been a lot of pressure on March, who already has a huge amount of pressure domestically to show that he can live up to Nagelsmann. Uh, but in this group, very few people in Germany or obviously abroad will be expecting him to uh, take one of the top two spots off PSG or Man City. So they really can go into those games against those behemoths um, and just kind of test their tactics, show what they can do. Um, I mean, I, I do think they are capable of you know, causing problems, um, but... This is obviously a transition period for RB Leipzig this season. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, more or less, I think they're probably more than happy with the fact that they've got a group that won't put a huge amount of pressure on them. The Bundesliga itself is undoubtedly the, the priority for them this season. Um, maybe the German, winning the German Cup as well, for example. So I, I think on the whole, they'll be quite happy with this and they'll be quite happy with the strength of squad. But now it comes down to whether Marsh can, you know, put it all together and improve on what Nagelsmann put together for two or three years. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, in terms of an early tip, that's a pretty strong one from Mo. PSG and City look likely to stroll this, but Leipzig won't make it easy for them. Uh, skipping across to Group B, another matchup, Mo. We'll throw this one back to you. Liverpool and Atletico Madrid, a rematch of that final game before COVID at Anfield, where Atletico put the then holders out. We all remember Morata getting them goals and Simeone celebrating and screaming in front of the Anfield road end. But Liverpool's entire focus this season has been getting back on track. They've obviously brought in Kanate that we mentioned from Leipzig to beef up their defensive numbers. But the big stories from them this summer is Van Dijk back fit. Obviously, they've lost Wijnaldum, but Jordan Henderson looks back fit. Mane, Salah have both stayed at the club. That's Klopp's pretty much entire modus operandi. Solidity, getting things back on track and getting them moving forward. We're going to talk about um, Atletico in just a second, but I want to ask you about Liverpool, Mo. In terms of that as a policy, given the strength and depth that they now have with Kanate and these players coming back from injury, are they equipped enough to fight across all of these fronts? I say yes, but not because of their renewals, right? Because the thing is, what they did, Liverpool, was really bad, was they stagnated. They didn't, they didn't make big enough changes, or rather the changes they tried to make didn't really come off. After the title win and after the Champions League win, they kind of stood still. They didn't do anything into that front three until Diogo Jota, and that's the game changer. And this is why I'm saying... I'm actually quite hopeful for Liverpool. Konate adds depth at the back, and that's great. Konate, Matip. It's funny because they went from last season when they had no centre-backs. 
Like this season, they've probably got the strongest centre-back depth in the Premier League. Uh, maybe even in Europe, Van Dijk, Matip, uh, Gomez and Canate is phenomenal. Like, There's no bad defenders there, not even average defenders. They're all brilliant. Uh, of course, three of them are injury prone and one of them's coming off, an, off a cruciate injury. So, I mean, let's see. But they're all very good. In midfield, they're going to really miss Wijnaldum, but they added potentially Harvey Elliott, this kid, right? If you watched him, you know, he's nowhere near defensive. It's defensively solid, but what he adds in attack is very interesting. Uh, he flanked wide a lot against Burnley. I don't know if he'll do in the Champions League, but he flanked wide against Burnley. Sadler basically came in and played striker and Trent played midfield. And it was essentially a very sort of interesting lot of on-the-ball on the sort of movement from Liverpool because it meant Trent was in the most dangerous area for him, which is where he can play passes. Sadler could basically roam around free, which always is, is always bad news to the opponent. And then he was play, uh, Elliot was playing right wing, so that's interesting. But the game changer is Jota because Jota scores goals because Roberto Firmino does not score goals as we saw Anfield against Atletico Madrid that night. Sadio Mane can struggle sometimes. He can be lethal. He can also struggle. It's a very strange thing with Sadio Mane. Salah is world-class. Salah will always score you goals. We know this, right? This is for sure. But if it's just one guy doing it, it's easy to shut the team down. Diogo Jota is different class. He's adapted to the team the same way Mane adapted to the team. He's been He's a very, very good player who's elevated himself to near world-class status by being such a perfect fit for Klopp's system. He presses phenomenally. He makes incredible intelligent runs. He's a great finisher with either foot or with his head. So he's really dangerous. And I think that's going to give Liverpool such a huge edge. Um, not, not just against Atletico Madrid, but it will against Atletico Madrid because Atletico will be, you know, set up to block off movement from out wide, you know, and te- and uh, the inter- quick interplays, exchanges of passes and long shots. They're not going to be able, maybe, well, they might be able to, you never know, but the quick little movements that Shotsa makes in the box, that could catch them out. But... Simi only plays a back three now, so they could go man for man up front at the back. I don't know. It's very strange. We'll see what happens exactly. It's going to be a very interesting matchup. But Liverpool, to me, with the addition of Jota and everyone being fit now, that's, very, that's a very interesting prospect. If they can get everyone motivated the same way they had them last time, uh, they won the Champions League. Watch out. We, everyone's been ignoring them because they haven't done any big transfer business, but the core of that very good team is still there. Admittedly, one or two injuries really stabilizes them, as last season showed, but Everyone stays relatively healthy. Watch out for Liverpool, man. That's a team right there. Stefan, just looking at Atletico for a second, obviously throw back to that game at Anfield where they knocked out Liverpool, ended their chances of defending the title. And Mo is right in terms of tactics and structure, the way that they set up. Simeone has, has tweaked and changed some very, very minor things, but you would still expect as a broad stroke them to set up in a similar way, close down space, block off runs, etc. Obviously they've lost Thomas Partey, but Marcus Llorente has really come to the fore. Obviously Luis Suarez, if they can squeeze the lemon and, and get another season of goals out of him. But some of the interesting signings that have come in have come into Atletico this summer. Barcelona, obviously, the civil war of Lionel Messi leaving and the fact they allegedly don't have any money. Real Madrid have pretended they don't have any money, despite the fact that they're trying to bring in Kylian Mbappe. Atletico have, have not told any lies. They've not said that they don't have any money, but they've said, we've got a bit. So they brought in Rodrigo de Paul and Matthias Cunha from Hertha Berlin. Cunha is an interesting one because outside of the Bundesliga, not a lot of fans know an enormous amount about him. Given the fact that he's going to come into this Atletico, Atletico team, he's going to add another level to them, another dimension to them in attack. Do you think that he and DePaul can bring them back to the table as, as challenges to go on and win this? I think it's a really interesting question. I think the players that they have signed probably illustrates where Simeone thinks there are problems in this team. Um, 
I must admit, I'm not a huge Cunha fan, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. I think he's, he does well in bursts, and he certainly showed uh, over s- small stretches of the games he's got a lot of talent. Um, but he just didn't do it consistently enough at Hertha. And, you know, that could just be because Hertha had been a bit of a circus club for a while, the squad being back and forth, managers coming and going. So, you know, under a real disciplinarian, disciplinarian like Simeone, he might kind of straighten things out and really put on a good one of form. And maybe that's what Atletico are hoping for. Um, similarly with DePaul, you know, he's a kind of goal-scoring, playmaking midfielder. He can obviously offer a degree of inspiration and kind of creativity midfielder. And I think that's kind of what Atletico might probably need uh, going forward this season because I must admit, I'll be really intrigued to see how Luis Suarez does this season. I thought he kicked, you know, he went off, started off with a flyer uh, last season, but then I think towards the second half of the season, he started to slow down, played a full Copa America campaign. Um, and, you know, and then you add to that how Felix, who hasn't really been, probably as good as he perhaps should have done or perhaps the promise that he once showed. And you, you, you kind of see a kind of quite a sparse kind of attacking line there, uh, in my opinion. So I think a lot hangs on how well Cunha does. I think a lot hangs on how well DePaul does. And I think a lot hangs on the kind of um, fitness of, you know, someone like Luis Suarez. Does he still have the same inspiration now that he's got, he's already proved mm. or he's already kind of, you know, stuck it up to Barcelona by winning the title last season? Does he still have that fire in his belly? So I think... As you say, you know, broad strokes, Atletico still look very strong defensively and midfield to be very agricultural, shall we say. Uh, but I think in attack, there's probably one or two too many question marks that have to be answered before we can really suggest that there'll be a huge problem for Liverpool. Yeah, see, that's the interesting thing you mentioned there is the fire of motivation of Luis Suarez. Because basically last season was pure revenge, right? He was just infuriated. How dare you think I'm so rubbish? Sell me to a rival goal and then I'll show you. It's happened to Barca before as well. It happened with uh, with Brian with Michael Laudrup, sorry, in the mid nineties. Happened to uh, Real Madrid with Samuel Eto'o. They sold him to Barcelona. He went back to Hordaunt then. Happened to Barcelona with David Villa to Atletico Madrid, the very same club in two thousand thirteen fourteen. So this, this is something this is something Barca should be familiar with, and Atletico Madrid have benefited from here. But yeah, you're right. Once the rage sort of wore off, and he had like I don't know how many goals it was halfway through La Liga, like 12, 13 goals. Once the rage wore off and the fit and the reality of oh I'm really old and I can't run around much started to set in, his his goal scoring dropped off dramatically. Picked up a little bit towards the end of the season, but essentially he all the thing is all he does is he moves, moves inside the final box inside the box and scores goals. But that's what Alecomer should ask him to do, which is why it worked. The question is, you know, does, like you said, that fire and hunger is that there? But what 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 you didn't mention? What what's interesting is Angel Correa is sort of emerging as like the big the big saviour for them. He was fantastic at the end of last season, firing them to the title, really scoring more goals than Suarez did in that run-in. He scored three goals so far in two games in La Liga. He's he's being the guy stepping up. And he's a phenomenal talent. And he was when they signed him as a teenager, but like he never really developed. And if he suddenly if he has suddenly found his potential or starting to realize his potential, that's actually a huge player Atletico have. And then DePaul is phenomenal. DePaul was amazing in, in the Copa America, one of the best players in the final, amazing assist to Di Maria for the winning goal. He's sensational. He's a really high-pressing midfielder, but he's got what the other Atletico midfielders either don't have or have forgotten about. It's a pass. It's a killer pass. And he can dribble. And this is the thing. Atletico Madrid, they're playing 3-5-2, right? The midfield, their midfield three now is Coque at the base and then Lemar and DePaul, which is actually very attacking. From Cholo Simeone. Now, of course, you have three centre backs mm. and Coque holding, and the, and the wide players work very hard defensively, right? They're wing backs, but 
at the same time, having those three in those key positions means that they can burst from midfield with real creativity and ingenuity. Now, against Liverpool, it's going to be interesting to see how they try and exploit the spaces behind and around Fabinho if they have spaces there to be exploited because that's where Liverpool can be beaten is the, is the space behind their midfield because their midfield is relentless pressing. If you sucker their midfield out, Depaul can beat them on the dribble. Their mom makes runs in behind. So I really like Atletico's team, but I, I have to say Stefan has a point that it's, this, it's just a, the attack. But I, I'm telling you, though, watch out for Angel Correa. He could be this year's Marcos Llorente. Like at Anfield, Marcos Llorente did the damage. Two goals, you know, devastated Liverpool. This year, it could be Angel Correa. Uh, the other two teams in Group B, Stefan, AC Milan and Porto. Porto have found themselves on the wrong end of a couple of fairly big beatings from Liverpool in the last couple of years. But AC Milan are an interesting prospect, not too dissimilar to, to Leipzig's situation at the back end of last season where they were in the title race with Inter. But in the last six weeks or, or maybe even going back to two months, three months, they just dropped off the pace massively. It's been an interesting summer from them in terms of <clears throat> transfers. Fikai Tomori's made his loan move permanent. They brought in, brought in Mike Mangian as a, as a keeper, but they've lost two massive players. Donnarumma, who's moved on to go to PSG, and Hakan Kalanoglu, who's also left on a free transfer. Given the fact that they've lost those big players, they've brought in some replacements, but crucially last season when it really mattered, Pioli and his players just kind of fell a bit short. They find themselves in a really difficult group. Atletico Madrid defending La Liga champions. Liverpool, we expect them to be right in the middle of the Premier League uh, title race this season. This is going to be really, really tough for Milan to get out of. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think... They're probably, um, in many ways, the real kind of question mark of this team. They could be fantastic. They could end up being quite terrible, as you kind of said. Like domestically, <laughs> they've shown that they can go the distance to a certain extent, but then they can also kind of stumble over themselves. Um, and this squad, you just kind of look through the squad, and it's just kind of full of players that can win games or could up, end up causing them problems. I think a lot of people will look at Giroud or look at Abraham Ibrahimovic, and they probably won't look much further, and they'll think, "Oh, typical Milan," you know the squad full of aging stars uh, wrapped around players who maybe aren't as good as they used to be but there are a lot of good players in this team you know I think particularly which might get them quite far is that kind of centre-back pairing of Tamori and Kier, uh, who I think are both tremendous central defenders um, they should hopefully be able to make up for obviously the goalkeeper moving on but as you say and I think they actually do have quite a lot of young players kind of littered throughout this team um so there is a good squad there beyond maybe you know two old lumps up front um so but again we just have to wait and see we haven't seen milan in champions league for so long that we can't even really go but can't even judge a lot of these players based on how they did in previous seasons so we really will just have to wait and see how they do the key for milan is going to be keeping ismail benesa fit he's the he's the creative hub of that team he's phenomenal in midfield obviously zlatan Giroud, all that stuff but if they can keep benesa fit that's going to make the difference. Uh, before we move on to United and Group H, we were kind of universal with City and PSG in Group A of uh, who would get through to the last 16. Very, very quickly, Stefan, we'll go to you first. Who's getting out of Group B? Who's the top two? I can't look beyond Liverpool and Atletico, to be honest with you. So I will be very boring and I'll say Liverpool and Atletico. <laughs> <laughs> Mo, will you stick with that? Toe the party line, Atletico and Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, I love to be a maverick, but they're the two best teams in the group. They're going to come out of it. 
Yeah, I agree. Right, full sweep so far. We're all in agreement. I've got a feeling we might not be in full agreement after the next group, Group F. And again, this theme of rematches and old friends and old rivalries being renewed because United get themselves up against Villarreal, who we all know, and definitely Mo remembers, they lost on that ridiculous penalty shootout uh, Europa League final last season. There's the potential for a bit of hangover, a bit of PTSD or a bit of V-PTSD for United in there. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer going into this one, Mo. So it seems only fair as a United fan that I'm going to have to ask you this. Given the fact that Solskjaer is so focused on winning a trophy, he has to win a trophy this season or there's going to be even more big questions asked of him. Priority is the Premier League. Varane was brought in to shore up the defence. Sancho has come in to give another attacking option. Given the fact that he is going to be focused more on the domestic front, domestic cups and the Premier League, where does Europe, where does the Champions League rank in terms of Oli's priorities this season? It's the Champions League, man. It's got to rank high. Even if your aim is to win the league or to try and win the league and whatnot, the Champions League has to rank highly because they've, they've, they've been embarrassed far too often in it. They've gone out in the group stages. You know, apart from that, that amazing game in PSG, which got him the caretaker job in the first place, he's not really done anything in the Champions League. I mean, all right, fine. He's had uh, uh, that that win in Paris again, the win in Paris. But you know, he, he needs to make a statement in the Champions League, right? They they need they they failed to win the Europa League two years two years now. They've tried the semi finalists and then losing finalists, right? Uh, the final loss itself was kind of embarrassing. I mean, okay, fine, they had injuries and whatever, but Villarreal just sat on Bruno Fernandes and suddenly Man United had nothing, right? It was embarrassing. They need to do something in Europe. They need to make a statement in Europe. This is Man United. This is the first English club to blaze a trail in Europe. Their their history is inexorably tied to the European Cup, even if they don't necessarily, aren't necessarily the, obviously they're not even like top five in terms of the clubs that have won it, but there is always an inherent romance attached to Man United, watching Man United Champions League nights back on ITV, you know, back in the day when it was only one, the only team on in Europe. So there's, he's got to do something. It, it may not be his chief priority, which is probably going to be trying to win the league, but he absolutely has to do something. And the thing is, though, with Jaden Sancho and Rafa Varane, Champions League Varane is his nickname. <laughs> so they've got one of the ideal guys to help them improve in the Champions <laughs> League because Victor Lindelof is a liability, has got them knocked out of both both Europe. The last two, last two knock, times they got knocked out of Europe in the Europa League, it was Victor Lindelof's fault. Now they've got Rafa Varane, they have to play Victor Lindelof. That's going to be huge. That's, that that alone is going to be huge and transformative because Wan-Bissaka, Varane, Maguire and Shaw, like who's the worst defender in there? It's probably Wan-Bissaka and he's one of the best 1-1v1 defenders in the world, right? Maybe Shaw. So the centre-backs suddenly are very solid. That's huge, right? There's no obvious weak point in defence. In attack, I mean, goodness gracious, Jaden Sancho, Bruno Fernandes, Edinson Cavani. Edinson Cavani is a legend of scoring, you know, in Europe. Uh, you know, Mason Greenwood is a sniper, is, is an absolute goal-scoring machine in the making. The only question for United, as it always has been and always will be until they sign someone, is midfield. And you can't win in Europe with an average midfield. Yeah. It doesn't work. Even Real Madrid, who won those three Champions League in a row and weren't necessarily the best side, had a brilliant midfield. That's what they had. They had that great midfield and they rode that to everything. It, the attack didn't always play well. Defense didn't always play well, but that midfield always played well. Barcelona, best team ever. Amazing midfield. Bayern Munich, treble. Tony Cruz, Leon Goretzka, not Tony Cruz. Um, well, you know, the first treble had Tony Cruz. Second treble, Leon Goretzka, Joshua Kimmich, right? The midfield, Thiago as well. The midfield is everything, right? You've got to control midfield. So United's midfield is a joke, <laughs> to, to, put it, to put it charitably, right? Unless they put Pogba in there, but then they don't really have a, a, a partner for Pogba. They haven't signed one, a defensive midfielder. They've got McTominay's out injured. Fred is, I mean, Fred is Fred. Matic is about five, six years 
over the hill. Who have they got? They don't have anybody. So they're not going to win the Champions League. They will They will absolutely get found out quarterfinals, round of 16 stage by someone. But I think they will put forth the effort. And they've got been given a, not, not a gimme group, because they're all kind of teams that can stifle United and bore them to death. But it's a winnable group. They're all beatable teams, every single one of them, even Villarreal, um, because United have got more firepower now, Jaden Sancho. With Sancho and Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba, and Mason Greenwood all playing well and not being absolutely drained by an entire season, they should have enough to beat Villarreal. And if they beat Villarreal, they're going to beat the other teams. They're going to win. They're probably going to win the group. The round of 16 depends on who they draw. And then I think they'll come across a quarterfinals. I actually get a very, very soft draw because they aren't. Their midfield is a joke and the better teams will exploit that. But there aren't any better teams in the, in the Europe in their group right now, so they can win it. Um, one arguable better team, RB Real, based on the Europa League final. Mo, need we remind you they were the better team on the night? <laughs> Why Villarreal do you keep first reminding ever me? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I love reminding United fans about that. Um, Unai Emery, it Stefan, it's an interesting right. position for him. Yeah, he was. Okay, that's okay. I'll accept that one. Um, Unai Emery, as we know, most successful manager in the history of the Europa League. He now gets a bit more of a kind of solid chance to test himself in the Champions League. And when you look at Villarreal's previous record in the Champions League, it is relatively good. Whenever they qualify, they always get out of the group. They've not failed to get out of the group in any time they've ever qualified for it. And their big business this season has actually been keeping players. We touched on this with with Liverpool and one or two other sides previously, but Pau Torres staying, Gerard Moreno staying, staying and then signing a big long-term contract shows their ambition, shows where they want to be. Given the fact that maybe there's not been a lot of exciting transfers coming in, Juan Foyth and Mandi have come in to, to add numbers to the back, but keeping Torres, keeping Moreno, keeping some of their midfield play, players as well, make sure that they're strong. And as Mo points out, Emre tactically knows how to set up for one-off games or or two-legged matches that he has to play against. Bidiriel could be a real threat in this. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think the comparison to Liverpool is actually a really interesting one because like Liverpool, you know, well, probably forced into because maybe a lack of money, like a lot of teams around Europe, um, they have kind of had to consolidate what they have. And I think for a lot of clubs that have had to go down that route this summer, that might end up being a blessing in disguise. Um if Villarreal have been able to keep the, the, the squad that you know won the Europa League, if they've managed to keep a squad that can cause so much trouble to big teams, then it's only going to get better if they're playing, if they've had another season together. Key players have signed new contracts. And as you say, Emery knows how to set them up well. Um, I think they are probably a perfect example of the kind of team that can really cause Man United huge issues in the group stage. I wouldn't be surprised if they finished above Man United in this group, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's just a huge... It's a huge problem for Man United going forward. I mean, I mean, you know, as Mo said, there's, there's probably not a huge amount of issues with them getting out of this group. But I do wonder if Villarreal have kind of flown under the radar for a lot of people with the troubles at Real Madrid and Barcelona. All the kind of praise or focus is kind of landed on uh, Atletico Madrid's feet because they obviously won the title last season. But you could argue that Villarreal are in just a strong position or even a better position than they were last season and therefore could and should be even better. So... Um, I mean, I'm obviously no expert in Spanish football or, or Villarreal in particular, but I'm, I'm really excited to see how they can do in this group because I think they could quite easily finish second. They're quite easily tip Man United to first by causing them real problems in a one-off game, which, as you say, Emery like, very, very recently proved he can do without too much issue. Before we grab some predictions on this one, Mo, I just want to ask you about Atalanta. Atalanta and Young Boys are the other two teams in this group. Atalanta find themselves in a little bit of a 
possible position of stagnation. Looking at the record over the last few seasons, three successive third place finishes. That's that's consistency if you ever wanted to see it. But you then put yourself in a position, despite the fact that Atalanta have produced players that we've all had to kind of sit up and take notice of. Now they're in a position where those players are attracting attention and leaving. Christian Romero is probably the big one moving on to Tottenham this summer given the fact that they don't really necessarily seem to have gone forward. They haven't gone backwards, but they are stuck in this position whereby they've got very, very good players. They know that there's always the likelihood that they'll just get vultured by another big European side. This is a difficult group, granted, but as you said, from from a United perspective, it is winnable. This is quite an open group because there's not one real dominant force. You've got United coming in, they're not title winners. Atlanta are not title winners. Real are in by virtue of winning the Europa League. This is an open group, but Atalanta, you get the sense that maybe they're just stuck in traffic a little bit. It could go either way. It could go either way. Honestly, that's how it is with Atalanta because they have they have this pressing style, this ferocious pressing style that could absolutely discombobulate United, as we saw with uh, Leipzig, right? But then also, if United can cut through that pressing style, they could get annihilated, as we saw with Leipzig. <laughs> Are we Leipzig? We lost 5 0 at Old Trafford. I'm absolutely destroyed. They were awful. Nowhere near United. They won 3 2 or 3 1 in at home and were way better than United. So it could go either. It, it, it's, it's such a cop out answer to say, but we literally can't predict what will happen with Atalanta. It could, they could go to Old Trafford or, 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 or the Madrigal and win. They could. They have that talent, right? But they could mm. easily just get slapped to pieces. It's like Leeds, right? Leeds, Leeds and Man United. Leeds are a terrible matchup for Man United because the way they play football is fantastic and open and expressive. But United are the kind of physically bullish, uh, straight, straight to the point of things team that just cut through that nonsense and just score goals. So they're like Real Madrid, like the Brazil, the Brazil team that undid uh, Marcelo Bielsa's Chile in 2010, 2014 and 2010 World Cup, just just and 2014 World Cup as well. Actually, just cut straight to the point. No messing about. Get in there. Get on with it. Right? Uh, the the, the Atletico Madrid, yeah, Madrid side that beat Atletico Bilbao in the 2012 Europa League final. Just that's the thing. So I, I really like Atalanta. They're going to be great fun to watch. Watch every single one of their games if you can. But honestly, Villarreal and especially Man United might just absolutely butcher them on the counter-attack. Okay, so as much as you said you can't give us a prediction, I'm going to ask you for a prediction, but I'll give you a second. <laughs> Stefan, I'm going to go to you first. Be the Real, United, Atalanta and Young Boys all in this one. Who is getting out? Who are the two into the last 16? I'm going to go for Villarreal and Manchester United in that order, just to yeah, <laughs> just to rain on uh, Mo's parade, unfortunately. Mo, come on, give it to us. Who are you going for? You're allowed to say United. We won't criticise no, no, you. I'm I, going for I, United. I I'm agreeing with Stefan. Villarreal, United. I think United will win the group. I think they'll, what will be interesting, I think, obviously, look, the historic, history of United Champions League groups with Villarreal is nil-nil draws. And I think that's probably likely to happen again in Villarreal. But in Manchester, I just think crowd being there, Jaden Sancho, I think, is a different, completely game, complete game-changing signing because now they can't just mark Bruno Fernandes and shut United down, which is what they did last time, which worked last time. But Jaden Sancho, they can't now just mark Bruno Fernandes and shut Man United down. So I think Man United will win that game. Man United will win the group. I do think Villarreal will have a bit too much European savvy for Atalanta. And I think Atalanta, much as we all adore them, will get undone by Villarreal. And I think Atalanta finished third Europa League. Yeah, and it wouldn't be like Emery to win the Europa League. We all know he's terrible in that competition. Right, the <laughs> final Premier League side is the defending champions, Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel obviously strolled into Stamford Bridge and went on to clinch the biggest prize of all. 
at the back end of last season, but he's got a different challenge facing him this time round. They've got Juventus in their group as the big challengers alongside Malmo and Zenit St. Petersburg. So, Stefan, I'm going to go to you first on this in terms of um, Thomas Tuchel. It's a very, very different landscape that he's now dealing with. When he came in for the second half of last season to replace Frank Lampard, he was in a position where it wasn't quite a free hit, but it was an open situation. If anything went wrong, the blame could be lumped on, lumped on the previous manager. Tuchel, in fairness to him, didn't look for excuses. He didn't look to play that line. But now he's had a full pre-season. He's had a full time to prepare. He's had the opportunity to bring in players. Obviously, Lukaku is the major one that's come in to, to strengthen their attacking options. His time at Borussia Dortmund is an interesting comparison to this of how he manages a pre-season, how he gets the team ready for a, for a full campaign ahead. There's a lot expected of Chelsea, particularly with Lukaku coming back. Yes, Juventus are going to be difficult. In terms of Tuchel and Chelsea, it's a different set of pressure this time round. How do you see him reacting to that, given the fact that they're defending champions and the fans will be demanding that they're in the Premier League title race? Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one because he kind of had a lot of good grace when he first arrived at the club in January, hit the ground running, uh, could really do no wrong. Uh, but now this season he's up against in the Premier League. They'll be expected to challenge for the Champions League again, even though very few clubs have managed to do that. Um, but, you know, I think in Thomas Tuchel, Chelsea do legitimately have one of, if not the best manager in the world. I think I legitimately think he, I mean, I really would put him above maybe Pep Guardiola, um, you know, Jurgen Klopp, for example, as well, in terms of his ability to go into clubs and get them playing well. The kind of thing that, I think it's quite interesting for Chelsea is that at Dortmund and then at PSG, he was very competent, he was very capable of building squads that can challenge for major titles uh, domestically and, in PSG's case, challenge for the Champions League. But one thing I know led to him falling out with people at the club. Now, the interesting thing is, ahead of him moving to Chelsea, everyone assumed that it was Tuchel that was the problem and he was the, you know, the problem in the changing room and it would only be a matter of time before he fell out with a board member, director, club owner, whatever, star player. Um, but, you know, if you look back at his time at Dortmund, he fell out with the club because the way that they sell star players when he's in the middle of building a squad, which I think is justifiable. Uh, at PSG, he fell out with Leonardo because of his kind of ad hoc transfer policy. I guess we have to wait and see if Pochettino can make that work. But again, you know, Bappy moving on possibly you might find that they're also quite erratic in a transfer window you know Tuchel may have been justified in that regard and it turns out Chelsea he's actually seemingly he just seems to be things just seem to be going along uh, to what he wants he's getting his ducks in a row he's got he already inherited arguably one of the best squads in Europe he's been able to add to it with Lukaku he might be able to add to it again with Koundé um, he's got all the tools in place to comfortably challenge the Premier League title and the Champions League and this season will be the one, I think, where he'll prove, you know, to a lot of maybe critics saying, well, I'm not the trouble starter that I've, I've been kind of characterised at other clubs. Chelsea are, are a tremendously well-oiled machine, um, especially when it comes to transfers. They're probably one of the most astute clubs in the transfer market in the world. Uh, and if Tuchel can be left to just kind of deal with the squad, um, yeah, I think I think he can prove once again that he's a tremendous manager. And I, I actually would even though a lot of talks were around PSG with Lionel Messi and Man City with Ronaldo, I think Chelsea are probably the favourites for the Champions League this season. Before we call this group, Mo, I'm going to throw it back to you on Juventus. Obviously, obviously, time of recording, transfer window just around the corner. We're stuck in the, the Cristiano custard. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, whether he's going to stay, whether he's going to go. That's still a moving project. 
it's an interesting summer for Juventus. Obviously, the hegemony in Serie A was broken last season into clinching the title. Eight straight titles for Juventus was ended by Antonio Conte and, and Romelu Lukaku. Both nine. of whom have now nine. left the San Siro. Nine, sorry, yeah, I beg your pardon. Who've now moved on, left the San Siro. And uh, Max Allegri's come back in. That poor season cost Andrea Perlo his job. But because so much of this does hang on Ronaldo and what happens everything is geared towards his movements in the next few days and transfers not been wildly exciting Weston McKennie has made his loan move permanent and Federico Chiesa is into the second year of his loan Max Allegri's brief is going to be fairly simple he's going to rely on a lot of the players that he relied on last time around that experienced call right the way through the team but ultimately they've got a big blow and a big big gap in the squad to fill they weren't going to win the Champions League, let's be clear. Even with Ronaldo, even with Cristiano Ronaldo, they weren't going to win the Champions League, right? They're still not going to win the Champions League unless their defenders all have some miracle season and stay, all stay fit. It's not going to happen, right? And their goalie isn't good enough. Let's be also be honest on that. You don't win the goalie. You don't win the Champions League. With, I said you don't win the Champions League with average field. No Champions League winner has had, a, has had a bad goalie as bad as Chesney. Like, you can't go back as far as you want. I think you might have to go back to Dida find Champions League goalie as bad and erratic as Chesney. And even then, Dida was pretty pretty boss at the time. Dudek for Liverpool? Yeah, but then he came, he, he he was the opposite. He's the exception that proves the rule because he went absolutely hmm. God God mode in the final and won them the final. So, yeah, but Dudek. <laughs> but you, you don't win the Champions League with a goalie like Chesney. And they're not, so they're not going to win the Champions League. They weren't going to do it anyway. What they're doing is they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding around Freddie Chiesa. They're rebuilding around Alvaro Morata, who is very limited, but is very good at bringing others into play. Others like Freddie Chiesa and is very good at heading the ball. And Juan Cuadrado is very good at crossing the ball. Morata scored six goals, I think, Champions League last year. He's he's a, he's a good player. He's a very, very good player. He seems happy in Turin. If nowhere else, he's happy in Turin. He scores goals there. I don't think they'll miss Ronaldo all that much. Obviously, you miss the, in Europe. In the league, they'll miss him because he just chunders over everybody. But... I think what will happen is you'll see Kulusevski and uh, Chiesa step up, take, take the shots he was taking. He, he cannibalizes the team shots when he plays Cristiano, which is fair enough. You know, whatever, he's a very good goal scorer. So I think Chiesa and uh, Kulusevski will take his shots and Juventus will carry on. They'll, they'll, go, they'll drop down a few goals in, in uh, Serie A. But in the Champions League, I don't think I'll make much of a difference. I think they'll still be pretty good. They could be pretty dangerous. They won't beat Chelsea. They don't have what it takes to beat Chelsea. No one in that group does. But... They'll get out of the group, I think. They'll finish second. And I think, let's see what happens then. Right, before we take a quick break, let's call this Cristiano Custard aside. Stefan, who is coming out of this group? Zenit St. Petersburg and Malmo complete the four, but Chelsea Juventus should expect to be the favourites. Who are you going for? Yeah, I think this is pretty straightforward. I'm going for Chelsea first, Juventus second. Mo, would you match up with that? Yeah, yeah, same here. it's, it's, It's very predictable. Yeah, I agree. We've been having a lot of agreements so far. Great stuff. Right. We are going to take a quick break. After the break, it's C, D, C, D, E and G that we're going to be getting ourselves through. Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Inter Milan, Real Madrid. Loads more to come. Make sure you check us out in just a second. Hello and welcome back to the Squawker Talker Weekly Podcast. This week, it is all about the Champions League. The Champions League draw has been made and we all know now who the great and good of European football will be matched against at the group stage this season. In part one, we talked about the Premier League, four entrants this season, Chelsea, Manchester United, Manchester City and Liverpool. 
Now we're going to look across to the non-Premier League side of the draw. Group C, Bundesliga Giants, Borussia Dortmund. They're up against Sporting Lisbon, Ajax and Besiktas. Now, Borussia Dortmund, Stefan, we're going to go to you first on this. Perceptions, situations in terms of German football, there's been a huge managerial merry-go-round this summer and Borussia Dortmund have found themselves right in the middle of it. Marco Rose has taken over the hot seat at the Westenfaller Stadion, who we kind of don't really know a massive amount about in terms of outside of the Bundesliga. Borussia Dortmund is always a club that people keep an eye on. There's always a massive interest in them in terms of how they're expected to perform. So I just wanted to kind of throw this over to you and get a bit of the lowdown on him. Given the fact that he has got big shoes to fill coming into the club, there will be expectations of them challenging for the Bundesliga and making a splash in the Champions League. How have the early days of Rose gone? Mixed results, I think, is probably the best way to put it. Um, they started off tremendously well with a 5-2 thumping of Eintracht Frankfurt in the first weekend of the Bundesliga, uh, in which Erling Haaland was just tremendous. And, you know, it couldn't have been a perfect start for Rosa. Um it showcased his kind of 4-4-2 diamond formation. It showed how he was going to get the best out of Haaland. And it also showed how Dortmund were going to be able to replace Jadon Sancho without really replacing Jadon Sancho. And they brought in Daniel Malin from PSV. I think a few people thought he might move on, came in as an almost like-for-like winger, but he's actually more of a kind of number 10 or number 9 um, who can kind of play off Haaland. So the, the tactics have changed. Uh, they brought in Gregor Cobell as well. He was a very competent goalkeeper to fix a position which has kind of haunted Dortmund for the last five, six, seven years. So, you know, they kind of have all the building blocks there to really build a proper squad. But right after that impressive start, they go into the Super Cup against Bayern Munich, a Bayern Munich team who are up against a huge amount of pressure themselves, which we can talk about later on. Um, but they were kind of picked apart. And on the day, it came down to just kind of individual quality. Um, Robert Lewandowski just finding space to score goals, really. Um and then after that, they then went to Freiburg, who are kind of a famous kind of difficult away tie in German football, and they lost the weekend there. So definitely, you know, a lot to improve on. I think we're still kind of waiting for this team to kind of fall, and fall into place for Marcosa, which is probably expected, to be honest with you. Um, but it just remains to be seen whether they whether they can kind of get their act together before the title race kind of pulls away from them. I don't really expect Bayern Munich to be as kind of unstoppable um, as they have been the last couple of years under Hansi Flick. I think they've got their own problems that they'll have to deal with themselves. But I think in terms of the Champions League, they've actually been kind of dealt a quite a, a good blow here, or not a good blow, a good uh, deal here, because but three teams in Ajax Sporting and Besiktas who they should be able to beat. Um, you know, I think Dortmund by and large are okay in the Champions League group stages unless they get a really bad run, which they did a few years ago with Barcelona and PSG, I think it was. So, you know, I think they've got the players that can really break down those teams. Um, and I think they shouldn't have too much problems getting through to the last 16. And that should maybe help them overall because it means they can keep their focus on the Bundesliga, which, you know, last couple of seasons, um, they've kind of been a little overrun by the Champions League to an extent in the group stages. And then that's meant they start dropping points in the Bundesliga and basically they're out of the title race before Christmas. So this kind of draw uh, may allow them to focus more on the Bundesliga. It may allow Marco Rosa to kind of embed his tactics and his ideas better domestically and keep Bayern within arm's distance. 
Looking at this group, Mo, it's an interesting situation because Dortmund are still favourites, particularly because they have Haaland at the top of the team, but they find themselves up against three domestic champions at, at the group stage. Sporting Lisbon, Ajax and Besiktas all come into this as winners of their domestic leagues at the end of 2020-21, but we still fancy Dortmund to have enough with Haaland, with the rest of the players, to get through this group. How do you see it panning out in terms of who's going through to the last 16? Well, I mean, Dortmund, right? Haaland, his top goal scorer last season in Champions League, UEFA forward of the year, youngest player to ever be, want, ever be nominated, ever to win that. He's a phenomenon. He's a terrifying human being. He's, he's football's Eren Jaeger. You know, you ever watch Attack on Titan? Just turning into a giant monster at a moment's notice and annihilating everyone in front of him. Who, who goes after him? I mean, anyone's guess. It's, it's, a Europa League, it's a Europa League little tournament down there. I mean, not literally just because the loser qualifies as Europa League, but because... Like they Europa League double teams, Sporting Portugal, fantastic, uh, nice little outfit. They won, they won the, uh, they won the league last year. But that, carrying that into the Champions League is always difficult. Ajax have got some very good players, some very good players. Gravenberch, love him, uh, you know. But can they, you know, their, their level has declined because, like you said in the intro, they've been picked apart. Like three years ago, they had Frankie De Jong and Matthias De Ligt. Now they don't. So. You know, uh, what can Ajax do? I don't know. Well, I think Ajax will probably be the ones to do it just because I think they've got more experience of doing it in the Champions League. They have more, they know what they're doing. They've been here before. They've been to this radio before. They will negotiate the, the group with greater ease and assurance than the other teams will. Um, and I just think Dortmund will steamroll everybody with Haaland. Um, unless he gets injured or something, I can't see Dortmund not winning, honestly, every single game. Um, Haaland is just that good. Like I think he's he's the phenomenon that everyone should be worried about, not Mbappe. Uh, uh, like if the, the sign the race to sign him next summer is going to be the real race. Yeah, that's the real one. But yeah, I think Haaland is absolutely incredible. I think Dortmund will win the group, and I think Villarreal second, not Villarreal, uh, Ajax second. Villarreal really, I've got into your into your brain. Um, so you're going with Dortmund and Ajax one two in this group. <laughs> Dortmund and Ajax as a one-two for you, Mo. Stefan, would you agree, or are you, are you going for somebody else? No, I think that's probably a good show. I mean, Sporting may upset a few people just because they're part one side, so they, they do have the opportunity to upset. But yeah, I can't look beyond Ajax. I think they're very, as Mo says, despite losing a lot of players, still a very impressive side. Right, let's move across to Group D. Inter Milan, Real Madrid, Shakhtar Donetsk and Sheriff Tipasol. Before we talk about the great and good of Real Madrid, quick word for Tirapsol, first ever Moldovan team to qualify for the group stages. Brilliant stuff for them. They're going to be playing at the San Siro. They're going to be playing at the Santiago Bernabeu. It's going to be a fantastic season for them. But unfortunately, the likelihood is that they are unlikely to get anywhere. Um, Real Madrid, Stefan, we'll go to you on this one. Carlo Ancelotti's glorious return has been a bit low-key. No major transfers coming in just yet. Asterix, Mbappe. Um, David Alaba is the only new face really of note to come in on a free transfer after he left Bayern Munich. But it's an interesting setup for Ancelotti. We know how successful he is as a player and as a manager in the Champions League. He knows what to do in these games. And as cliched and as old-fashioned as that sounds, it is the truth. Zidane pretty much did exactly the same during his time in charge. He just knew what to do on those big Champions League nights to get them through and get them winning games. Ancelotti's been a bit of a difficult start. They obviously won the opening game against Alaves, but then got a few scares against Levante last time out. Can he squeeze another tune. We talked about squeezing the lemon. I'm going to go with squeezing a tune out of this old old team this season because they are old, let's be honest. Benzema, Modric, Cruz, average age is much higher than a lot of other teams in the Champions League this season. But they do have what a lot of other teams don't have, which is a huge amount of experience. 
Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm not as kind of downbeat on Real Madrid as maybe some others are. I think maybe, I don't know if it's maybe just a modern football phenomenon that we are, we, we are so obsessed with age that we think anyone past the age of like 28 is basically past it. Um, I, you know, I still think, um, I think there's still a lot more to come, well, maybe not a lot more to come, but there's still a lot more juice in the tank for guys like Luka Modric. I watched him tear apart my Scotland team at the Euros as if he could have done it in his slippers. Um, so he's obviously never really a player that's had to run around the pitch like mad. So I think he's still got plenty to offer. Tony Cruz, I thought, interestingly, when he re- opted to retire from the German national team this summer, specifically said he did so because he still wants to put another couple of years in at Real Madrid. Um, and then you've got that front line, which despite its age still has quite a lot to prove. Obviously, Tor- Torgan Hazard, Eden Hazard, um, you know, he's just come back from a huge injury. He'll have a huge amount to prove if he can stay fit. But if he can stay fit, I think you've probably got a player there with quite a lot of inspiration to do well. Um, if Ancelotti can keep Gareth Bale off the golf courses and actually trying, then there's a tremendous player there. I mean, I actually thought, if you look at his numbers for Tottenham last season, they weren't even that bad, actually. He's still a perfectly good player there. And I think Benzema's still a tremendous forward. Uh, you know, I think he proved that in, uh, in the Euros. I think he proved that last season for Real Madrid. He was probably their best player, in my opinion. Thoroughly enjoyed watching him. And then, you know, as you say, if they can sign Mbappe, that's that's a game changer overnight for them. Uh, I think they suddenly go from maybe being like eighth or ninth favourites for the Champions League right up to one of the best because there are problems in this team. There aren't, like, you know, as both said, the midfield maybe, I mean, if you take Modric or Cruz of that team and there's suddenly Isco of Alverde, then maybe there's problems there. But just having someone like Mbappe and then if you've got guys like Hazard and Bale who are even, even close to what they've been in the past, then... I think Madrid still have a huge amount of bite that they can they can bring to this team. And, and if Ancelotti can get them all playing well, if you can get them all looking happy, then there, there is a team there that can, that can do something. Ancelotti is great at getting people happy. That's the one thing I'll say. He's fantastic mm. at getting people to be happy and cheerful. And that's why I think Hazard might even have a great season this year, finally. I mean, maybe. Who the hell knows, honestly. Uh, Bale, I don't think, is, is, is there for very long he's there for a year to see out his contract then he's going to go he'll he'll go to somewhere else he'll retire whatever he's he's just chilling um the, the thing is they're, they're not just old they're, they're actually they're tired there's a lot of age a lot of minutes in those legs like a lot of these guys have been playing, playing constantly 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 Modric looked dead on his feet after the last world cup and then he sort of like during the lockdown something happened and he came back from lockdown looking like a million bucks he's been amazing ever since then um like 35 36 he looks, he looks like he's 25 but Look, Cruz is phenomenal. Modric is phenomenal. Casemiro is great. But Madrid have always had these flaws, right? Where if you can get behind their defense, right? Uh, if it, sorry, if you get behind their midfield, they're behind Casemiro, they're just acres in front of their defense. Now, often that was then bailed out by Courtois, by Ramos and Varane being so solid. They're both gone. It's Eddie Militao and Nacho, right? Now, Eddie Militao is good, but he's not Rafa Varane. And Nacho is never Sergio Ramos. Right, so that's a huge thing, a huge blow to them, to their mental belief. Ramos pulled them through so many games by sheer mental belief. Their big Champions League, the Decima, because of Sergio Ramos, the 2016 title, because of Sergio Ramos. So the, the two foundational Champions Leagues that then started their run came because of him, and he's gone now. So that's going to be interesting, interesting to see what happens. Kylian Mbappe, look, I love Kylian Mbappe. He's world class. He's amazing. I also watched him get mocked out of the game by Junior Firpo last year, playing on the wrong side of a three man defense. So I'm not completely sold that Kylian Mbappe is going to make them into the game-changing, world-busting, ball-breaking team that, that, that they all think he is, right? In the league, yes. When you're just chundering over teams in the league, yes. 
They sign Mbappe, they're favourites to win La Liga instantly. Champions League is different, right? Can you do it when the big, when the big moments, when the chips are down? Can you find a way to get it done? Madrid never even really played well on their two of their Champions League wins in the three. The 2017 one, they were fantastic. But 2016, 2018, they never really even played well. They just sort of showed up when they had to and did what they had to to get the goals. This team still has that in them, definitely. Would never rule them out. But I just think the lack of Ramos, the lack of that winning mentality, because Carlo Ancelotti, like I said, when things are going good, it's all thumbs up, baby. He's fantastic. When things start to get a bit rocky, ooh. Now, do you remember his Chelsea team? 10 years ago now, I'm going to go back 10 years. They were fantastic. They beat Wigan 8-0. They're beating eight teams 7 and 8-0 end of the season. They won the, won the double uh, in 2009-10. Phenomenal side. Start the next season, there again, they're just steamrolling everyone. You're thinking, this is the next great English side. They get a little speed bump with some coaching problems behind the scenes and some players getting a bit injured in around December that year, and they just collapsed into a pit. Carlo Ancelotti can't handle, can't resurrect things when it starts to go wrong. When things are going right, it's fantastic. So as long as Madrid can keep things going right all season, they'll do well. I really hope that Ancelotti uses Wigan as a motivation at Real Madrid. I can't wait for that team talk at the Bernabeu. If we can do it at Wigan, <laughs> you can do it against Barcelona or maybe at the Nou Camp. Imagine that. We won in Wigan and we won in Barcelona. Fantastic stuff, right? Inter Milan, <laughs> Stefan, we're going to flick across to them now. This is a, a very odd situation for Inter Milan because they won the league and then the managers left and their best players left. Antonio Conte has moved on to pastures new and Romelu Lukaku has joined Chelsea. Atraf Hakimi, who is obviously massively important for them, has also gone. He's joined PSG, but Simone Inzaghi's come in, solid reputation developed at Lazio. Obviously, he's quite well respected within coaching circles in Serie A. He's earned his he's earned his stripes, and now he's got himself a crack at a big job. But they're defending champions, but have lost two of the biggest building blocks from that that squad. Denzel Dumfries has come in as a replacement for Hakimi. Edin Dzeko has come in for a kind of replacement for Lukaku, and Hakan Kalinoglu was crossed from the uh, red and black of AC to the uh, black and blue of Inter this season. But it's it's very difficult to get a handle on them with Lukaku gone because they weren't all about Lukaku last season, but he was so central to everything they did. He was absolutely phenomenal. He's now gone. You're asking Dzeko to replace those goals and replace those performances. How do we see them placed going into the Champions League this season? Yeah, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's impossible to kind of gauge what they will be because almost paradoxically, they are the Italian champions. Um, but at the same time, we haven't, we really don't know what to expect of them. Um, Lukaku is such a big part of that team. Hakimi, huge part of that team. Um, you know, I think Mo can probably offer more on this because he was he was waxing lyrically about these players before we started recording. But, um, you know, I think they've brought in some astute signings, some guys who might be able to cover the players that have moved on. Um, but you know, in Inzaghi, can he can, can he do what Conte offered? Maybe maybe he can offer more in Europe, uh, possibly. But there are you know there are building blocks there um, to to kind of put together a really decent squad there. I mean, Chalhanoglu is obviously a player who's done well. I mean, he did well in Germany, did very well at Milan. Um, he might be able to kind of paper over some of the cracks in that team going forward, um, especially if they got someone like Jekyll sitting up front. Um, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe let Mo kind of go on more about this because I feel like I'd just be repeating everything he said before we started recording. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, uh, Stefan hit the nail on the head there, right? Uh, I'll, I'll get to the players in a minute, but the coaching change is going to help Inter in the Champions League. Antonio Conte is great at winning league titles. He's great at motivating teams. He's rubbish in Europe. He's absolute garbage in Europe. I don't know why, 
but he is. Look at Inter in the last two Champions League group stages they've been in. They've bombed out both times. They've had it in their hands and they've bombed out. They lost, they lost twice last year to an absolutely terrible Real Madrid team. Right? A Real Madrid team that lost that doubled by Shakhtar Donetsk, right? Mana Solomon, Tyson. Who are these guys? They doubled Real Madrid. Bruges got a 2-2 draw. You know, Gladbach almost beat, almost knocked them out, bottled it right in the last game. You know, it, uh, <laughs> Inter, it, Conte does not do the Champions League, does not do European competition. I don't know why, but he doesn't. Simone Anzaki isn't Conte. So you, you've taken a similar squad and you've put it in Europe with a, with a better, with a manager who doesn't crumple when he hears the Champions League anthem, right? That's a huge bit lift already. Look, anyone misses Lukaku. He was their top goal scorer, their top assist last year, right? Anyone would miss that. He's world-class forward. Dzeko's really, really good, though. Dzeko is really, really good. Completely and utterly underrated for the last, I don't know, 12 years. The guy won the Bundesliga with, with Graffiti, with Wolfsburg, right? When it came to, came to Man United, Man City, sorry, helped them win the Premier League. Was you know Everyone remembers Aguero. Dzeko scored the equalising goal in that game against QPR, right? He was a bigger figure than Aguero in the 2014 title, and him and Yaya Toure fired them to the win. Right? He's a phenomenal player. He's absolutely incredible. All-round talent, really talented, really skillful. He's a great link man as well. And they've got they've still got Latara Martinez, right? Who can who can now step up and take more shots and score more goals. They've got Chadanoglu and and Jekyll, and they've already got a great understanding of those two. They're both linked up. They've got one goal, one assist each in the opening game. They win against Genoa. They look really good. They've still got Nico Barea, who was so good at the Euros for Italy, right? They've got Dumfries, who's like a sort of Dutch Hakimi. Not as good as Hakimi, obviously, but it's still very good. We saw at the Euros again at wingback, he can be a real threat, a real handful. Perisic is a, do- is a dogged worker. Their defense is still the same, getting better. Skriniar, Devay, Va- uh, Bastoni, who I think is phenomenal. Alessandro Bastoni. What, look, keep an eye on him if, you, if you're interested in defenders. Brozovic is still there in midfield, right? They've still got a very, very good team. The question is just going to be who can score the goals now Lukaku isn't going to do that. If Chalanoglu, if any, if early indication is to go by Dzeko and Chalanoglu can work, have a very good relationship, they can keep they can keep things sticking over. You bring in Latara Martinez, now you're cooking with gas. Inter are going to be serious business. It wouldn't surprise me if they beat Real Madrid in one of the two games this season. Um, and they'll they'll definitely get out of the group. They might even challenge Madrid to win the group, to be honest. I really... I'm really high on Inter. Uh, to wrap, Solo, we mentioned before, Stefan, first ever representatives from Moldova. They're in this one alongside Zenit St. Petersburg. But really, it's all eyes on Inter and Real Madrid. Can you just see it's going to be straightforward for Madrid and Inter? Or could you see maybe a little little Moldovan surprise? <laughs> a Moldovan surprise sounds like a horrible euthanism there. Uh, but I think I'll probably have to... Yeah, or a delicious kind of dessert. dessert. Oh, and I guess that just shows where my mind goes, I suppose, in these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, this kind of strikes me as a kind of almost an old-fashioned Champions League group. It's kind of changed a lot now because of the seedings and, uh, you know, how teams qualify. But this looks very much like a top two, bottom two situation. Um, so I can't I can't look beyond Real Madrid and Inter. Mo, would you agree? Straightforward, Real Madrid and Inter into the last 16? Yeah, I think if 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 Real Madrid get Mbappe, they'll win the group. If they don't get Mbappe, Inter win the group, but they'll both go through. Okay, fair enough. Right, we're going to shuffle on two more groups to get through. Group E, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. The last time these two faced each other, it was the infamous 2028-2 to Bayern Munich. That cost Kike Setien his job. 
Ronald Koeman has come in and it's probably fair to say that he's done an okay job all round. He's now going into his second full season, not particularly tearing up any trees. Last season, they fell away in the title race. Lionel Messi has obviously left the club this summer. He's brought in Memphis Depay, Eric Garcia and Sergio Aguero, although he won't be fit until in and around October time. So I want to look at Bayern Munich first. We talk about this results and the fact that that might have a little bit of a psychological edge over Barcelona. Julian Nagelsmann has taken over the biggest job in Bundesliga football. And we all know what set of pressure that comes with. We talked about Juve and their utter dominance of Serie A. Bayern Munich have that on another level, particularly in the last decade, where it's just winning the title is par. Nagelsmann knows that. He knows that that is just an expected achievement within Bundesliga. But then the Champions League comes in as an added pressure. Obviously, they won it back in 2020, beating uh, PSG in the final. How has he coped so far? We talked about the early days of Rose. How are the early days of Nagelsmann gone so far? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Um, you know, they've, they've had a really good week. Uh, they won the Super Cup. Uh, they beat Col- they came, well, they didn't come back from behind. Cologne came back to go 2-2. And then they won a last-minute winner against Cologne at the weekend. Uh, and then Joshua Kimmich, who is kind of billed as the next club captain, signed a new long-term deal. Uh, contract so you know there's a kind of feel-good factor at Bayern which has kind of long been hoped for because there's been a summer of very little transfer business the club have been really constricted by their finances uh, and although these things don't really matter in the grand scheme of things they've looked absolutely pants uh, in pre-season friendlies so there was a bit of concern going into the season that things weren't really ticking very well uh, you had guys like Kingsley Coman suggesting they might want to move on Robert Lewandowski's agent was just doing a tour of every major city in Europe, apparently, according to the German media. So, courting uh, bids from all sorts. So, it, it, it kind of felt like things might have been brewing under the surface. But, you know, after a couple of decent wins, particularly beating Dortmund in the Super Cup, um, things are kind of back on track now. However, having said that, I do kind of think this Barcelona side could be a huge banana skin for, Bar- for Bayern Munich, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, for two different reasons. One, um, everyone thinks they're terrible. So there'll be a huge amount of pressure on Nagelsmann, perhaps more than just whatever Bayern Munich manager deals with, um, particularly in the first season. But to really kind of, you know, well, maybe not repeat the 8-2, that'd be ridiculous, but to really make sure that they thump Barcelona because, you know, Barcelona are down, they're you know, out of luck, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I've, I've got to be honest with you, <laughs> As silly as it might sound, even without Lionel Messi, I still think, you know, man for man, this Barcelona squad's not that bad. I mean, I agree with you that Ronald Coleman's, Ronald Coleman's maybe not the most inspiring manager in the world, but they, they kind of held on in the title race up until maybe a few weeks before the end last season. Uh, yeah, OK, they came undone in the Champions League against some decent sides, and I really don't expect Barcelona to properly challenge in the Champions League, but I think they've got the quality, the individual quality that can upset a Bayern Munich team if um, it still hasn't clicked into gear. And I'm really not sure Bayern have probably clicked into gear. Nagelsmann himself said, said, himself said rather, uh, that he doesn't really expect the team to kind of click into gear until about Christmas time. So if Barcelona can kind of put together a decent run, if Coleman can actually build a hard-working, balanced team without Messi, I actually think they might be a decent opponent for Bayern Munich. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a foregone conclusion by any means. Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it, right? Um the 8-2, one thing overlooked about the 8-2, right, is that like, for that first half, it was basically an even game and Barca had as many chances to create goals as Bayern did. The difference is Barca had two 33-year-olds up front who could barely sprint and Bayern were just flipping 
lasers like running everywhere and you know and that that was the difference ultimately because the Bayern defense in that game and and that whole season frankly was just as creaky as the Barca one they had uh, Alaba looking completely out of sorts Boateng was just sort of there but they were so good in attack it didn't really matter no one really realized Barca on the other hand were not that good in attack because Suarez can't score you know struggles to score uh Messi was 33 and the defense was then exposed, right? PK long lay, old, slow, not very strong. And PK is kind of strong. You know, long lay is just a like a magnet for bad luck and nonsense. So, you know, that was very... But the thing is, it's changed now. Not only is they don't have any 33-year-olds in attack. They've got... Griezmann is 30, but Griezmann runs and has, has a tremendous energy and physical profile. Memphis Depay is phenomenal. And they're probably, by that time, going to have Ansu Fati back. Or maybe Usman Dembele too. Maybe not Dembele, but Ansu Fati certainly. Brathwaite, if he plays, is not good. Don't get me wrong, but he runs. He's got great physical energy. And they've got that midfield. The best midfield, I still think, in the world. They're, they're as good as anybody. Pedri, Frankie, and Busquets. Frankie de Jong, Pedri, and Sergio Busquets. Phenomenal midfield, right? As we saw at the Euros, they basically carried Spain to the semis of the Euros. With Spain having a joke defense, a joke goalie, and a joke forward line. But they made made the semis and should have won the semis because that midfield. So as we said before, midfield can win you anything, right? Barca have a, have the best midfield around, I think, or one of them anyway. Their defense was the big worry, the big problem against Bayern before. PK, as I said, PK Longley, Sergio Roberto, right back, good lord, uh, Jordi Alba. But now, theoretically, and this is this is why this is where it's not set right. Uh, you could you could put out a defensive Sergio Dest, Jordi Alba, Sergio Dest, by the way, who want, who's wanted by Bayern, who turned down Bayern to go to Barcelona, which sounds really re- weird when you say it out loud, but he did. Um, and then Ronald Araujo and Oscar Mingueza. Now, you may not have heard of Araujo or Mingueza, but what they are is they're both strong, they're both aggressive, and they're both rapid. They're fast. And Araujo is also massive and really good in the air. He's Uruguayan. What, what Bayern exposed about the last Barca defence, the fact that they were old and slow, is not there in this current Barca defence. Now, don't get me wrong. Ronald Koeman being Ronald Koeman, he could just as well play PK and Jared PK and Eric Garcia, two defenders who are not 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 fast, uh, who are very slow. Who are, and Eric Garcia, we've seen, is massively susceptible to any sort of pace. And so is PK. So Koeman is Koeman. So I'm not saying it's going to happen. But if he has the good sense to play Araujo, or one of Araujo and Mingueta, or ideally both of them, and Des and Alba, that's going to help cover them at the back against the, the electric pace of Bayern's attack. And let's be clear, I'm not downplaying Bayern. Bayern are phenomenal. And in attack, Memphis Depay, there was only three players in Europe's top five leagues last year who had more than 20 goals, 20, 20 or more goals, and 10 more assists. Harry Kane, Romelu Lukaku, and Memphis Depay. All right? So he's a really, really, really good player. He's a really special player. He wanted to play for Barca all his life. He, he loves Ronald Koeman, gets on well with him, understands how to play full sniper. He's already got one assist to his name, one assist, one goal in his first few La Liga games, he could be the new talisman. He's not Lionel Messi. No one's Lionel Messi, right? But Barca had Lionel Messi for how many years? How many Champions Leagues have they won in the lot since Pep Guardiola left? One. And they've had Lionel Messi that whole time, and he's been the best player in the world that whole time, right? So maybe you don't need the best player in the world to win the Champions League. Maybe what you need is a team that presses all together as one, which they can do now, a team that works hard. And you need a little bit of stardust, but then you've got Memphis Depay. You've got Ansu Fati, who was phenomenal. Youngest ever goal scorer in the Champions League history. And maybe, and I'm not saying maybe on this one, maybe Antoine Griezmann finally remembers, oh yeah, I'm really, really good at football. Maybe he can actually step up and play well. He might still be a whelp. We never know. But if he steps up, he was top five in the world before the, uh, 
he didn't win the 2018 Ballon d'Or, went in a big old sulk. So, you know, mate, if he remembers his level, like, like, like Stefan says, their squad on paper is actually phenomenal. It, it's just a matter of Griezmann has to step up. That's the big thing. That's the big yeah. if. Memphis, we know, will step up. And I'm fairly certain Ansu Fati will step up too. If Griezmann steps up, they can be a contender. They won't win it. They're not going to win it, but they'll be a contender. Uh, I'm going to assume that we're going for a Barcelona Bayern 1-2 in this one. Benfica and Dynamo Kiev are the other two teams. Stefan, Barcelona and Bayern? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Benfica look like a really decent side, but um, yeah, I'm going to go for Bayern and and Barcelona. Mo, would you agree with that? Bayern and Barca straight through? Bayern and Barca straight through. If Barca play around, I mean, Getha, they can top the group because they can beat Bayern Munich, but they won't play them, so they won't top the group, so they'll finish second. Okay, fair enough. Right, the final group is Group G. Mo joked before that Group C had a bit of a Europa League feel about it. Group G definitely, definitely does. Lille, Sevilla, RB Salzburg and Wolfsburg. Um, We're going to talk about Sevilla first, Mo. I'll throw this one over to you. In terms of summer, transfer business has been relatively positive. Monchi's been at it again, getting some good players in. They've obviously lost Brian Hill, who's gone to Tottenham. Eric Lamela's gone in the opposite direction. We don't really know who's got the better end of that deal, but some sensible business. Rafa Mir has come in on the back of looking good for Huesca last season. Wolves are obviously dying to get rid of him. He's looked good for Spain as well. So that's someone that will add goals. Interesting right the way through the rest of the team. Marco Dimitrovic, released by Ibar, has come in and probably will take the number one jersey, mainly because he's absolutely terrifying. Ludwig Augustensen will come in to add a number in defence. But Thomas Delaney coming in from Borussia Dortmund is probably the most eye-catching sign and he's been a real soldier for Dortmund over the years and for the Danish national team. Things look good for Sevilla. Lopetegui looks like he's still hungry, like he wants to do well. Despite the fact that we always kind of put them on the edge of the La Liga title race conversation, they made a fist of it at the back end of last season. How excited are you? Yes, they've lost Kiel and he's a big, big blow, but they've kept all their other good players. At this stage, Jules Kunde hasn't left. It looks good for them this season. I'm excited, man. I think they're going to be great. Brian Hill is no loss to Sevilla, right? Uh, they didn't rate him. They didn't want him. Uh, they've got Eric Lamella, who scored three times in two games for La Liga. So, you know, they're, they're doing all right, man. They're, they've got a really good team. Uh, and the series is phenomenal up front, really, really coming into his own. Uh, Rafa Mir is going to be a huge little project for him to develop. Uh, and Agustinson will help offset Kunde leaving. Kunde leaving is a blow. There's no doubt about that, right? Well, he's going to leave, probably going to go to Chelsea. That's going to be a big problem. But uh, they've got uh, Montiel, I think, at right back uh, to help them. Uh, yeah. And they've got, uh, obviously, Marcus Cunha left back. They've got Arts, so they've got Argentines left back. They're a phenomenal team. And Delaney's the big one for me. Right? I'll tell you why Delaney's the big one for me. Because Lopetegui has always, he's, he's, obviously, he's this amazing attacking coach, likes attacking football. But he's always, always, always had a very, very defensive midfielder at the base of his midfield. He's the one that made Casemiro a thing. Casemiro was a Real Madrid B player, was going nowhere. He took him on loan to Porto and made him into a top-class player that Real Madrid then took back, right? And then, and then recently with Sevilla, he's had Fernando, who is like 30 million years old, but still playing in the base of midfield because Lopetegui loves to have a pure defender in there, right? Delaney is a pure defender. I think he's going to be a phenomenal sign because he's now going to enable them to stop playing Fernando every single game, maybe rest him, maybe rotate him, maybe even drop him all together and move on and get Delaney in there. And still keep that same bite, that stem, that same structure, that same shape that he likes to have in his midfield. I think that's the Sevilla are a really, really interesting team. I think they're finally going to, you know, they might actually do something in the Champions League. They, they need a favourable draw. They're not going to beat any of the heavyweights. Don't get me wrong, but they might. They might do something quite interesting this year. And and 
and fans back in the Ramon Sanchez Pith one on the on European nights. Look, I'm telling you right now, that's the best stadium in Europe if you want to go it's for fan atmosphere. It's it that's going to be huge, man. Those fans, I mean, what they did last season without the fans was impressive because those fans are like literally 12 man. They're the most apart from maybe Dortmund, they are the most impressive home support in the entire continent. They're incredible. Uh, just flicking across to Lille for a second, Stefan obviously tore up the Ligue 1, transfer, uh, Ligue 1 title race last season and clinched it. But in a similar situation, as we've seen at uh, Juventus and Inter Milan and one or two others, they've had a managerial change. And Christophe Gaultier, who led them to the title, is now gone, um, which is a big, big blow. He was so central to everything that they did. And they had, by title-winning standards, they had a relatively thin squad. He stuck to the same kind of core of around 15 players for the entirety of last season. But now they're in the Champions League this is a relatively favourable draw. It could have gone really bad for them. They could have got a real heavyweight uh, to come up against a Real Madrid or a Man City or somebody like that. They haven't. They've now got an opportunity to maybe kick on and get into the knockout stages. Salzburg and um, Wolfsburg, either side of them in this one. Despite Gaultier moving on, have they got an opportunity to push on into the knockout stages? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think Gautier Moon was probably a kind of prelude to what was coming down the line. Um, you know, there has been something of an exodus from the players moving on, uh, key players moving on in particular. Obviously, we've seen quite a lot of them move to the Premier League. There was kind of a glimmer of hope in that kind of, you know, the pre-season cup final against PSG, which they won. You thought, well, maybe there's kind of life in the old dog yet, but the kind of start to league on has suggested that it's going to be a really difficult season for Lille. Uh, you know, I know... When people, I know, understand what people say when they say, you know, this is the kind of Europa League group and it doesn't have any big hitters, but Lille will be up against three really decent teams, I think. You know, Mo's made a really good case for, for Sevilla there. Um, I think Wolfsburg will actually be a real um, surprise package as well. They've a lot of people just kind of move on to them very briefly, but a lot of people expecting them to kind of fall apart after Glasner left and Van Bommel came in, who had no real pedigree as a coach, but. They've held on to all their key players uh, and they've actually made some decent signings as well in the summer. So they've actually really bulked up as a squad and they've actually had a decent start to the season. They have been disqualified from the Jerry Cup because they used an illegal substitute, but they've won their first two league games. So they actually look quite decent. And in Salzburg are just kind of, you know, even though they're kind of technically a new outfit in their current iteration as a Red Bull side, but they're just kind of these kind of Europa League veterans and, you know, they, they're quite happy to give teams bloody noses. They're quite happy to claw up points in the group stage group. So I really fear for Leo, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. I mean, I understand that, you know, on paper, they could have an opportunity here of um, grabbing a top two spot. But I think I think they're up against three really good teams here. Yeah, I agree. Right, for the final time, the eighth group of the day, we're going to get you to call this one. Mo, we'll let you go first this time. This is a tricky one to call in terms of the level of the team. There's all a bit of a much of a muchness, but Lille, Sibir, Salzburg and Wolfsburg, who is going through? I'm going to say Sevilla are going to win the group. And I'm going to say, I'm going to go with Stefan's uh, recommendation. I'm going to go say Wolfsburg over in a few seconds because I too, I don't, I have a feeling Lille are going to, struggle to carry both league and Champions League at the same time and they're just going to not do well in either. I think Wolfsburg. Stefan, are you going to carry the Bundesliga flag, Wolfsburg to go through with Sevilla or do you see Lille or Salzburg springing a bit of a shock? No, I think I agree with Mo. I think I think Wolfsburg really sh- should do quite well in this group. They should be able to beat Wolfsburg, uh, should be able to beat Salzburg and Lille on their day. So um, I think Sevilla probably a, a bit too much for them at this point uh, in this, this squad's development but they've got good players and they should finish in the top two so I'll, I'll pip them alongside Sevilla 
Okay, great stuff. Very, very brave selections right the way across the board. We're going to call it there for the Squawker Talker podcast this week. Stefan, Mo, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me on. Great stuff. Thanks very much, guys. And as ever, we will be here every week on the Squawker Talker podcast. If you hit subscribe, you can get access to a brand new episode as soon as it is ready. And obviously, give us a follow on social media. Give us a like, give us a retweet. And also, feel free to give us a review on the podcast. We love reading them. So if you want to get in touch, please do. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon.